In episode 36, we talked a little about the fact that Oscar's pants had been returned to TCSO custody without being examined or tested at Morton's lab. On 12-26-75, Oscar's wife laid out his clothing, a pair of navy blue double-knit slacks, a pink and beige plaid western shirt, and the new white sweater she had bought him for Christmas. It wasn't a normal work outfit because Oscar was meeting with the city building inspector, Ben Owens, and then going to Bill Rose's downtown real estate office. This same outfit was described by his brother-in-law, Avery Dula, who saw Oscar at lunchtime, and again when they went out to dinner. Danny Bolin also described that clothing in his statement about seeing Oscar on Garden Street after lunch. The shirt and pants are listed on the first chain of custody card. They were logged into evidence as items number 7 and 8 by Brian Johnson at 5.50 a.m. on Saturday the 27th. Those are the same clothes that Oscar put on when he was pulled out of bed and arrested at his house. Johnson collected them at the jail. Item number 9 is a tan coat, so it looks like he put on the coat instead of his white sweater, which was collected into evidence directly from his bedroom later. Those three items were sent to Morton's lab on January 6th. Pretty simple, right? Oscar put on the outfit, laid out by his wife at 7.30 a.m., was seen wearing it at lunch and dinner, and then put it on when he got dressed to go to jail. So why did TCSO Hensley call Mike Grubb at Morton's lab and tell him not to examine or test the plaid shirt and blue pants? As we discussed in episode 36, Donahue didn't know about Hensley's call or the lack of examination of the outfit until he was cross-examining Grubb on the witness stand. At that point, the judge ordered that the plaid shirt and blue pants be sent to the DOJ lab in Fresno for immediate testing. The crime lab found nothing on them, and Donahue argued at closing that TCSO hadn't wanted the shirt and pants examined for evidence since they were clean and could not have been worn during Donna's murder. While we completely believed that TCSO would hide exculpatory evidence, how did Hensley know that the lab wouldn't find any blood or mud on those items? Also, why not just keep the shirt and pants in evidence at TCSO? Why did Hensley drive them up to the lab on January 6th and then call and tell Grubb to ignore them? Well, we stumbled upon the answer. We've talked about Bird's to-do list a few times before. It was created around January 8th, 1976, and it covered all of the things that Byrd wanted documented on the case before he handed it over to the DA's office. It covers things like the missing TCSO reports that Byrd needed to have created and backdated to support the clothing trail and forensic findings. It's a shockingly dishonest document, and the defense didn't see it until 2001. Anyway, item number 10 says... Have lab in Oakland check tan shirt and dark brown trousers for blood stains. This assigned to Sergeant Hensley, 1876 at 0755 hours. So, Hensley placed that call to Grubb on January 8th, just two days after he personally delivered the evidence to the lab. As you may remember, Donahue tried to ask Grubb about the reason for the call, but was blocked by the judge after Powell objected. Donahue could have overcome that objection by calling Hensley to the stand and asking him. 
Presumably that would have led back to Bird, and Donahue could have tried to find out why Bird had suddenly wanted a tan shirt and dark brown pants tested, instead of the pants and shirt that everyone agreed that Oscar was wearing on December 26th. Obviously, Donahue never did any of that, so it's a mystery that we've been trying to unravel. We went back to see when the tan shirt and brown pants were collected from Oscar's house and realized that it was during the second search, when TCSO went back on December 29th to try to find some kind of footwear to match to the heel print at Neil Ranch. During that second search, they took three of Oscar's sweaters, his coveralls, one short-sleeved tan shirt, and a pair of dark brown slacks. The sweaters and coveralls match what we know Oscar wore that day and make total sense. However, why did they take that one shirt and pants outfit and ignore all of Oscar's other clothing? We looked again at all of the witnesses. Gene Owens didn't see Oscar's clothing as he drove by, and Beth Brumley didn't observe a shirt or pants, just possibly a sweater. Gloria Mascoro described a white turtleneck sweater and very light pants, possibly tan or gray. Mr. Mascoro only saw a truck, not a person or clothing. The only person who had been interviewed around Garden Street who said he saw Oscar was Danny Bolin, and he described the blue pants and plaid shirt with white sweater. We dug through all of Bill Rose's interviews and testimony, and nobody seems to have ever asked him what Oscar was wearing at his office. Ben Owens, the city building inspector, wasn't asked until the trial, and he remembered Oscar wearing blue jeans, and nothing about his shirt or his sweater. TCSO didn't interview Oscar's daughters, and Rick Carter said that he didn't remember what Oscar was wearing. As far as we can tell, sometime between the first search of Oscar's house, early on December 27th, when TCSO went back on the afternoon of the 29th, Bird became convinced that Oscar had not been wearing the shirt and pants taken from him at the jail, but rather a tan shirt and dark brown slacks and he directed TCSO King to look for and collect matching items from Oscar's house. Why? We don't know. Our best guess is that we have a missing witness, someone who wasn't documented in any report or interview turned over to the defense. That witness, or witnesses, must have described seeing a man at a critical time and location wearing the tan and brown outfit. The obvious choices? Along Marinette, at Neal Ranch, or near the bike scene. It could also be someone seen by Carol or Judy as they rode away from Don Lee's house. We went back through the handwritten notes from the lab and confirmed exactly what happened. On January 8, 1976, Morton wrote, Call from Sergeant Hensley. Clothing suspect was wearing on date of crime. Dark brown pants light tan or cream-colored shirt, white high-neck sweater, one of two in evidence? This info from Detective Bird to Sergeant Hensley to Mike Grubb. The strangest thing about all of this is that Bird's order to Hensley and the call to Grubb were totally unnecessary. If the goal was to make sure the tan and brown items were examined and tested for blood, all they needed to do was absolutely nothing. Hensley had already delivered them to Morton on the 6th. We see them as items number 17 and 22 on the custody receipt. 
So what happened between January 6th and the 8th to make Bird so incredibly certain that Oscar had been wearing that outfit? So certain that Hensley instructed Grubb to completely disregard and ignore Oscar's blue pants and plaid western shirt. This makes absolutely no sense. Why pick out those two items from a list of 87? Grubb spent hours looking at three different white sweaters collected from Oscar's house. Why not throw in the pants and shirt that multiple witnesses clearly identified and were taken from Oscar at the jail? Apparently, this didn't make any sense to Donahue or the judge, and the blue pants and plaid shirt were tested by DOJ after the issue came up during the trial. We're glad that happened, so we know for sure they had no blood on them, but we're frustrated that Donahue didn't seem to wonder why Bird was focused on an outfit never described by any witness. So, who was seen wearing a tan shirt and brown pants, and why was Bird so certain that the person in that outfit was Donna's killer? We keep coming back to something that Bird heard from a witness, but never disclosed to the defense. The lack of witness interviews and testimony in this case is maddening. We are positive that TCSO interviewed the workers who were at Neal Ranch on the afternoon that Donna was killed. We believe this not because we think that there was a competent investigation, but because we know that Bird would have tried to find at least one ranch worker that he could push into saying he saw Oscar or his truck on the ranch on the 26th. There is no record at all. Who was working on the 26th? Where in the grove? What time did they leave? What did they see and hear? Even if there was no useful information developed, there still should be TCSO reports that answer the basic questions. This is Investigation 101. Talk to the witnesses at the scene of the murder. The only reason to hide those witness interviews from the defense and jury is if they pointed to the presence of a different suspect. What about Carol and Judy? According to the TCSO reports, they were never asked if they spoke to anyone along their bike route or felt they were being followed. Did they see any people or vehicles as they rode from Don's house back to Judy's? We don't know. Why didn't the girls testify at the trial? They could have nailed down the exact time that they left Don's house and explained Donna's planned route home. Here is another area where the lack of information leaves room for doubt. Did the girls have information that pointed away from Oscar or towards a different suspect? Why didn't TCSO issue a public plea for information regarding sightings of Donna after she left Don's house? Did they get reports from citizens that pointed away from Donna being kidnapped at the bike scene? Who was present at the Lee and Scroggin homes during Donna's visit? According to the TCSO reports and testimony at trial, nobody from law enforcement ever set foot on the Lee Scroggin property on the 26th. In fact, other than a quick visit with Don at 7.30 a.m. on the 27th by TCSO McKinney, there was absolutely no documented contact between law enforcement and the last place where Donna was seen. How did the girls know to wait for Don to return? Did Don's mother or one of his sisters tell them? Did Don or his dad see anything strange near the house when they arrived? Had the family had any stalking incidents, maybe targeting their daughters? We know that they had suffered a ransacking burglary just seven months earlier, when they still lived on Belmont. We don't know the answers because none of them sat for TCSO interviews and they all refused to speak with the defense. 
we feel like we've solved one mystery, only to open a bigger one. We understand why Hensley made the call to Grubb, and why Grubb failed to examine the clothes Oscar was wearing on the 26th. But now we want to know who saw a suspect in a tan shirt and dark brown pants. Where was this person, and could that outfit be a clue to the killer's identity? It doesn't mean anything to us, but maybe it did to Bird. He must have given it some thought after all of Oscar's clothing and truck tested negative for blood. We've also been doing more work on the notepad we discussed in episode 37. Why was a critical piece of physical evidence totally ignored by TCSO and the Tulare DA, and why didn't the defense team fully recognize it as exculpatory evidence prior to trial? Could the notepad provide proof of the identity of the man who killed Donna? Although we've always thought that the least likely explanation for the notepad was that it was accidentally dropped by Donna's killer, we now think that is exactly what happened. We've had the opportunity to review an extensive collection of D'Angelo's handwriting, and he simply cannot be eliminated as the person who wrote the numbers in the notepad. Comparing samples, we could clearly see all of D'Angelo's number quirks, which are most noticeable in his 8s, 3s, 5s, and 4s. For the other numbers, it was more the lack of distinctiveness that matched. The 1s never had tops or bottoms, the 2s didn't have loops, and the 7s didn't have overhangs or cross marks. Everything is consistent and nothing is eliminating. You can view those pages on our Facebook and website. We won't rehash the circumstantial evidence that points to D'Angelo's guilt in Donna's murder. But where does the handwriting fit? It's just one more piece of consistent evidence. Investigation is a process of elimination. We're always looking for impossibility. If D'Angelo's numbers looked like Oscar's, it would have taken us five minutes to eliminate him as the owner of the notepad. One cross seven or a closed four and we would have taken D'Angelo right off the list of possible notepad owners. That didn't happen. All of this has forced us to take another look at the notepad and our thinking about it. Not much has changed since we recorded episode 37. We're still left with the idea that D'Angelo accidentally dropped the notepad in the dark at the bike scene. The two most likely options would be that it fell out of his shirt pocket when he bent over to place the bike, or that he accidentally grabbed it with the invoice book from his car seat or dash. We cannot imagine any scenario where he left it there on purpose. We have no doubt that the photo of the notepad taken by TCSO Johnson was staged by Bird. Were the notepad and invoice book actually found together, inches apart and right by Donna's bike? That scene looks great in a photo for the jury. All of the evidence you need right before your eyes. However, it's clear from the TCSO reports and trial testimony that the photo is unreliable at best. Since we believe that Bird staged that photo, we have to assume that he didn't realize that the notepad and invoice book had different owners 
until after TCSO Johnson took the photo and collected the items into evidence. That brings us back to TCSO Hensley's report and testimony regarding the fingerprints. Our copy of the notepad pages isn't great, but it's easy to see where Hensley applied ninhydrin and it reacted to the amino acids in human sweat. Two of the pages had partially visible fingerprints, and one looks like it could have been comparable. That is, the original page might have shown enough detail to be compared with a suspect. We can only see the fingerprint areas on the pages with numbers. Nothing else from the notepad was copied for the defense. If there was an anhydrin reaction on the front or back covers or on the blank pages, we would have no way of knowing. We went back to look at Hansley's report and realized we may have been too trusting. It says, 2200 hours, 26 December 75. Reporting officer was instructed by Lieutenant Peabody to come to headquarters to process some physical evidence on this case. The items were A. One receipt book bearing some used and some unused pages. B. One small notebook bearing some used and some unused pages. C. One piece of carbon paper. Reporting officer processed the items for latent prints using the Chemprint brand of Ninhydrin spray. Usable latent prints were developed on three of the used pages of the receipt book. So, technically, Hensley's report does not say that he failed to find usable prints on the notepad and the carbon paper. He simply did not record the results of the fingerprint testing on those two items. He documented that he applied the ninhydrin to the notepad, but not what he found. At trial, Donahue asked Hensley about fingerprints on the notepad, and Hensley said he, quote, found no comparable latent fingerprints on the notepad. When pressed about how many pages he tested, he said, as I recall, I processed the top sheet, the back, and all sheets which had been used or had writing on them. We don't have anything on the record about the front or back cover specifically, and we don't know if there were no prints at all or smudged prints, like the used pages with figures. All of this is subjective and based on Hensley's opinion on the quality of the prints. A different analyst might find enough points to compare to a suspect. We also have to consider the fact that the fingerprint processing was done at 11 p.m. on the night of the 26th, so immediately after Hensley logged the notepad into evidence. However, his report is dated January 2nd, well after Oscar had been charged. The report indicates at the bottom that it was prepared with Sergeant Bird. Is it possible that Hensley compared one or more prints from the notepad, but did not get a match to Oscar, his wife, Donna, or Carter, so he left it out of his report. We would say yes, absolutely. When Hensley testified that none of the prints were comparable, did he mean that they didn't match any suspect or victim prints, or that they were so smudged that they couldn't be compared to anyone? It should mean that he found only smudges, but excluding evidence of an unidentified person's fingerprints at the bike scene would be consistent with the rest of the case. Multiple TCSO officers hid footprints and tire tracks that did not match Oscar or his truck. When Morton and Grubb testified that they found, quote, nothing of evidentiary value on an item, that only meant that the evidence didn't match Oscar. A good example were the hairs found inside the ski mask. The jury never heard that they existed or that they didn't match Oscar. If the evidence was exculpatory and pointed to someone else, 
the jury was simply told that nothing was found. This all brings us back to the question we asked in episode 37. Was the notepad the real smoking gun in the case? If Bird recognized the notepad as being the type used by Exeter PD, and the handwriting and fingerprints did not match Oscar, what did he think? Obviously, we already know that TCSO and Powell did everything they could to hide the notepad from the defense. Powell did not ask one single witness about the notepad, including Oscar, and he tried to make sure that it was not entered into evidence, but Donahue repeatedly insisted. An object was found right next to the invoice book and the bike, and the DA totally ignored it at trial. Why wasn't the notepad presented to the grand jury or sent to Morton's lab? Why did Donahue have to keep asking TCSO Johnson to bring it to court? There is only one possible explanation. They knew that the notepad was evidence of the real killer's presence at the bike scene. That being said, there's a huge gap between knowing that a piece of evidence may point to an unidentified alternate suspect and Bird believing that the suspect was D'Angelo. Normally, we would say that incompetence is the answer but that doesn't explain Byrd's intentional destruction of the evidence. We've thought of several different possible ways that Byrd could have come to suspect D'Angelo. Was there something in the notepad that we've never seen? We only have the three pages given to the defense. Was there any identifying mark inside the cover or on another page? Did Byrd investigate the notepad and discover it was issued to Exeter Beatty? Did the notepad have one or more usable prints that Hensley was able to match to D'Angelo? Law enforcement fingerprints are kept on file for elimination purposes. Sometimes officers accidentally leave a print at a crime scene, and that print is then eliminated as being of evidentiary value. Did Byrd ask Hensley to check against the Exeter PD and TCSO officers who responded to the bike scene? This would be more likely if Byrd thought the notepad was PD-issued and accidentally dropped in the dark during the initial response to the missing person call. Did Pettyjohn's investigation into the notepad tip off Byrd? We had already gone through all of Donahue's handwritten notes and Pettyjohn's reports, and there was no mention of the notepad. We thought it was odd that Pettyjohn's invoices continued through the trial, but the last report we have from him is dated January 23, 1976. We found one undated handwritten note from Pettyjohn that mentioned the notepad. It says, Show scratch pad to Mrs. Clifton. See if it's familiar. Are written figures on photograph hers, her girls, or Clifton's? Is she right or left-handed? We don't have any report or statement from Mrs. Clifton that mentions that information, but we know the answers from asking her. She did not recognize the notepad, and the handwriting did not belong to anyone in the family. She is right-handed. In trying to date Petty John's note, we went back to his invoices to see when he met with Mrs. Clifton. It was on February 3, 1976, two days before the grand jury. 
So it appears that Pettyjohn was trying to establish that the notepad did not come out of Clifton's truck before Powell presented his case to the grand jury. However, something else caught our attention on that same day. Before Pettyjohn met with Mrs. Clifton, he went to Exeter PD, and he met directly with Chief Hank Fry. We'd missed this before because the name was mistyped as Hank Ray. We know of absolutely no reason for Pettyjohn to have met with anyone from Exeter PD, let alone Chief Fry. All of the locations on the 26th were outside Exeter PD jurisdiction. They made no reports regarding the case and were not involved beyond helping in the initial search for Donna. So why did Pettyjohn go to Exeter PD on his way to meet Mrs. Clifton regarding the notepad? Yeah, we're all thinking the same thing. Petty John, a retired FBI agent, thought that the notepad belonged to someone at Exeter PD. Whatever Petty John did that morning seemed to work. Powell did not enter the notepad into evidence at grand jury, and he never said one word about it there or at trial. Powell knew for certain that the notepad did not come from Oscar's truck. We believed that Powell knew who dropped the notepad by the bike, that it was an Exeter PD officer, and that he was left-handed. Did D'Angelo put himself under suspicion through his words or actions? We know that Exeter PD officers were called into the search for Donna early, well before Bird arrived. This is confirmed through TCSO reports and our discussions with Exeter PD Farrell Ward, who brought his canine to the bike location. Ward did not have a specific memory of seeing D'Angelo that night, but he said that it was dark and foggy, and there were dozens of officers and volunteers searching the area. We've been told that D'Angelo interviewed at least one critical case witness on the night of the 26th. We believe that happened. It should be obvious that even though Exeter PD was called in to help with the search for Donna, it was not their case, and none of the officers should have been interviewing witnesses, especially outside the city limits. Not only do we feel the source for this information is credible, we know for a fact that D'Angelo did the same thing at the Snelling House. Farrell Ward and his canine were called in to help track the suspect who had just kidnapped Beth and killed Claude, and there was D'Angelo acting like he was one of the investigating officers on a Vesalia PD case. It seems likely that D'Angelo asked questions or attempted to direct the investigation in a way that caused Bird to notice him. Although it's way out there, we even had the thought that maybe D'Angelo told someone that he accidentally dropped his notepad and tried to get it back out of evidence. It's a crazy thought, but something very specific made TCSO and the DA certain that the notepad pointed away from Oscar. Did witness information implicate D'Angelo? This goes back to what we discussed earlier with the mysterious man in tan and brown. Did TCSO speak to a witness who reported seeing someone in uniform, a police car, or D'Angelo himself at a critical location. It's totally possible. Was there physical evidence that implicated D'Angelo? We know that TCSO Johnson, Hensley, and King 
all stated that they were directed to ignore numerous tire tracks and footprints at all of the scenes because they were visually determined to be from law enforcement. Of course, the proper procedure would be to fully document the scenes with photos and diagrams of all tracks and prints, identify the make and model of each tire and shoe, and account for their accidental contamination of the crime scene by showing exactly which officer's vehicle or shoes left the evidence. Again, the lack of proper investigative procedures leaves open the possibility that tracks or prints pointed directly to D'Angelo's car or shoes. At some point, Bird may have realized that rather than being accidental contamination of the scene, those tracks or prints were exculpatory evidence that pointed to Donna's killer. Could there be other physical evidence found at Nail Ranch that the defense knew nothing about? Yes, absolutely. All of the TCSO reports were written up well after the actual events and at the direction of Bird. Reports were delayed, rewritten, and supplemented to support the case against Oscar before they were given to the DA and then turned over to the defense team. We've proven so many lies and contradictions in the reports, they just look like a pile of unreliable garbage to us now. TCSO Johnson collected, quote, pieces of victims' clothing at Neal Ranch that he never logged into evidence, presumably Donna's pants and shoe. So it's not a leap to believe that if something was found that pointed away from Oscar, there would be no record of it. Did Byrd learn of evidence that connected the murders of Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond? You may remember that Byrd was assigned to Jennifer's case in March 1976. Although we saw the Armour case file during our September 2017 meeting with TCSO, we've never been allowed to read it. We know that Byrd closed the case as solved, but unprosecutable, by mid-1977. Further, we know that the physical evidence was not sent for DNA testing until 2017, after a specific press inquiry. We also know that there was no evidence that tied Bird's suspects to Jennifer or the murder scene. The suspects denied seeing Jennifer that night, giving her a ride, and being in Exeter. No witnesses saw them with Jennifer or at the homicide scene. So how was the case closed? Simple. Bird said he knew who killed Jennifer and moved the case out of active homicide investigations. That's why when TCSO formed their new cold case unit in August 2016, Jennifer's case was not on their unsolved list. This isn't speculation. TCSO Chris Dempsey gave an unaired press interview that unequivocally stated that Jennifer's homicide was solved and that she was killed by three of her friends. Dempsey and TCSO Dwayne Johnson told us and Sergeant Vaughn the exact same thing when we met with them. Our meeting ended when Vaughn told them that he was certain that the VR killed Jennifer and that they needed to reopen the case. And TCSO said no, it was solved. Vaughn literally stood up and told us it was time to leave. It was that abrupt. One thing is certain, Bird needed Jennifer's case to go away, forever. Her murder was, and is, the clear link between the VR and Donna. The easy answer would have been to pin Jennifer's murder on Oscar, but we know that wasn't possible. 
As TCSO stated to the press and at grand jury, they knew exactly where Oscar was between 1965 and 1976. They had already confirmed his alibi for the day Jennifer was killed. That brings our thinking back to early 1977, when VPD went public with their conclusion that the VR was the EAR. Vaughn told us that when Donna was murdered, he immediately assumed that her killer was the VR, and he called TCSO to discuss it. He says that he was shot down and they refused the possibility of working the cases together. You have to think that when Bird learned for certain that Oscar was innocent, he had to remember that call from Vaughn. Did Bird learn something that pointed to D'Angelo while working another case? There are two cases that Bird could have and should have immediately connected to Donna's murder. We've discussed both of these attacks in prior episodes and details are included in the timeline. Both of them occurred in October 1974, and they were investigated by Bird. The first was just outside of Vesalia. The woman was home, alone, preparing dinner in the kitchen when she was confronted by a masked man with a gun who forced her into the bedroom and then beat her severely. The man had blue eyes, and his mask had only eye holes. He used the woman's name after coming through her unlocked kitchen door. TCSO decided that since the attacker knew her name, it must be her next-door neighbor. They immediately arrested him, despite the victim's inability to identify him in the lineup, a complete lack of physical evidence, and his alibi with multiple witnesses. He was acquitted by the jury at trial, and the real attacker was never caught. TCSO simply closed the case, saying that the jury, quote, got it wrong. We've read the court file and talked with the victim's daughter. We aren't guessing about the details. The victim suffered long-term damage to her sight and issues from the head injury. She lived in fear of the man that Bird told her had attacked her, never realizing that maybe he got it wrong. We've also covered an attack that occurred the following Sunday night, just outside the city limits of Tulare. It was the day after the newspaper announced the arrest of the wrong man in the first case. We've discussed this case directly with the victim and her next-door neighbor, who was the first person on the scene. The woman was home alone with her two young children while her husband was on a hunting trip. She locked the house and fell asleep in her bedroom watching TV with her small dog. She was awakened by a man punching her in the face until she lost consciousness. She saw from his wrist that he was white, but she did not remember being able to see his face. Everything about the break-in made us feel like we were reading an EAR report, including closing the bedroom doors of the children, dumping her purse outside, stealing cigarettes but leaving valuables, and leaving the chain across the front door. More details of this are available on the timeline we posted to our website and Facebook page. Both of the women worked for the local school districts and had clearly been stalked. The attacker knew their schedules, names, and that they were home alone. They suffered identical injuries, including to their vision. The assaults occurred just a few days apart and matched no other cases in the county. Neither case was solved. We learned a lot about Bird by looking at those two cases. When he had a second identical attack with a highly unusual M.O., and his suspect was sitting in the county jail, he should have known that he had arrested the wrong man 
and it was likely that the attacker wanted to make sure Bird knew it. When that same suspect had an alibi with multiple disinterested witnesses, he ignored it and would not admit that TCSO had arrested the wrong man. When the jury refused to buy it, he simply closed the case and told the victim that the suspect got away with it. What we saw was a man who was incapable of admitting a mistake, especially if it made him look like a bad investigator. If you thought that home invasion attacks on married middle-class women by masked lone white males were common in Tulare County in the mid-1970s, you would be wrong. Other than Snelling, we have not found any similar attacks, and VPD Vaughn did not know of any others. The closest cases would be the Porterville rapist assaults, but they were confined to the Porterville area, and a connection to these cases and the VR was eliminated based on suspect description and M.O. even before Galloway's arrest. Galloway was given a very lenient sentence based on his plea deal and appears to have confessed to all of his crimes, including to the 1974 Tool River attack on two teens that had never been connected to the rest of the series. Bird was also the lead investigator on Galloway's crimes, so we have no doubt that he tried to wrap up the Tulare attack in Galloway's confession, but it just wasn't the same guy. VPD did think that the attack near Visalia may have been the VR, but the arrest and acquittal of the wrong suspect clouded the usefulness of the information. Just like with Jennifer and Donna's cases, TCSO told Vaughn that they knew, for a fact, that they had the right suspect, and VPD's investigation proved the man that was charged could not be the VR. How much damage did this Miss Clue cause in the hunt to find D'Angelo? Maybe a lot. Knowing that the VR was capable of extreme violence may have made them take Jennifer's disappearance more seriously or conduct stakeouts for the VR a year earlier than they did. Maybe Claude Snelling and Donna could have been saved. Over and over again, Bird and TCSO pretended to solve cases with no investigation, no physical evidence, and reliable alibi witnesses that were totally ignored. This not only made it impossible for VPD to see the case files and follow any leads, but it helped convince the investigators in Sacramento that the VR wasn't the EAR. The Tulare case is particularly upsetting when it comes to the missed EAR connection. When we talked to the victim and her next-door neighbor, they both stressed one of the weirdest parts of the night. After the victim regained consciousness, she couldn't see because she had detached retinas in both eyes. The only phone number she could remember was the neighbor's, and she knew they could help because the husband was a sergeant with TCSO. The wife answered the phone. She'd been waiting up late for her husband to return from a TCSO function. As she walked next door, her husband, Richard McGowan, drove up, and they approached the neighbor's house together. They knocked on the front door, and the victim tried to open the door, but she couldn't. She was very disoriented and couldn't understand that the attacker had put the chain across the door. 
Eventually, Sergeant McGowan walked around to the open back door of the garage and entered the house through the kitchen, the same way the suspect come in the house. Compare that to this description from the SSO report on the March 18, 1977 EAR assault. Apparently, neither friend nor her father could understand what victim was saying. Friend and her father went to the garage door, and friend knew where the house key was kept on a nail in the garage. Friend ran back to the front door with the house key and tried to unlock the door. But when she tried to open the door, the suspect had placed the chain across the inside of the door, and they couldn't open the door. Friend ran to the back door and tried to open it, and found a chain had been placed across the inside of this door, too. Victim stated at this time she was able to yell, Backyard! Backyard! And friend's dad came in through the sliding glass door. This also made us think about D'Angelo's attack on the victim he had stalked while she was still in high school in Rancho Cordova. It was before he moved to Exeter. He returned to her house while her father was out of town on October 9, 1976. He woke her after he had tied all of the bedroom doors shut using clothesline from the backyard. While Sacramento sheriffs were on the scene investigating, the next-door neighbor approached one of the deputies. Neighbor stated that he thought that his residence had been burglarized also. Neighbor stated that he had returned home at 0130 hours, 10976, and found his rear door unlocked and the chain on the inside of the front door had been latched. Neighbor said he had been the only one at home because his parents were out of town for the weekend. Neighbor did not find anything missing from the residence and did not wish to make a report. Neighbor related that he did not find any windows open or any screens removed. 1,500 hours. Reporting officer was inside victim's residence, and neighbor came to the door. Neighbor came inside and told this officer that he had found some jewelry in his mother's room, and that he did not believe it was his mother's property. Neighbor showed this officer about six rings and three coins in a plastic bag. After neighbor left, this officer asked victim if neighbor could be the suspect. Victim said he had the build and size of the suspect, but she would have to hear him whisper to be more sure. The suspect had told victim that he lived down the street from her and he would hear her if she screamed. Both of these EAR attacks had occurred before VPD made their first trip to Sacramento in May 1977. Vaughn said that he first contacted Sacramento sheriffs in November of 1976 and obtained not only the EAR case reports, but also those from the burglary unit on their rash of ransacking burglaries in the EAR neighborhoods. TCSO had never informed VPD of the Tulare attack and told them that the Visalia case was solved and unconnected to the VR. We know that if EAR investigator Richard Shelby had spoken with those victims and TCSO Sergeant Richard McGowan, he would have immediately heard the EAR MO. If he had learned about Donna's case and the planted invoice book used to frame a suspect, he would have recognized his own suspicions of the framed neighbor in the 10976 EAR attack. Why wasn't this information shared with Shelby? Because Bird hid the details and gave VPD bad information. That all sounds awful. 
but maybe like it could be accidentally missed opportunities or miscommunication between police agencies. Okay, but then try to explain how Byrd himself failed to inform SSO when they contacted him after Galloway's arrest. The EAR had just committed his second attack, and the home invasion and the long time spent with the victims were unique enough MO points that SSO asked Galloway to be held as an EAR suspect pending their investigation of him. In order to get that hold, they had to show probable cause that Galloway was a good EAR suspect. So Bird was told exactly what happened in the first two EAR attacks. SSO had chosen to hide those cases from the press and the public, but they told Bob Bird. Why didn't Bird inform them that he had two other assaults that were matches for the EAR, but were not committed by Galloway. We went back to look at the police reports from those first two attacks to see what Bird could have matched to the Visalia, Tulare, and two Exeter cases. From the first assault on June 18, 1976. The EAR was wearing a mask with only eye holes. He made verbal threats of harm and his intent to commit rape. The suspect had no accent. The victim was alone in the house while her father was out of town. The victim was bound with her own bra. The victim was cut with the attacker's knife. Papers from inside the house were taken to the backyard. The victim's purse was found dumped on patio in the backyard with the wallet and contents lying next to it. Entry to the home was made by prying the wood away from the lock on the back door. Stolen items were $10, five silver dollars, and two packs of Winston cigarettes. The victim was attacked in her own bed, and the EAR left no fingerprints. From the second assault on July 17, 1976. The victims were 15 and 16-year-old sisters. The EAR closed the bedroom door of one sister. He made verbal threats of harm and his intent to commit rape. One of the victims was punched in the head multiple times, which left swelling and multiple scalp contusions that broke the skin. The victims were attacked in their own beds. The attacker pretended to have seen the victim at her school prom. The girl's parents and younger siblings were out of town. The EAR's mask was flesh-colored, with only eye holes. The attacker wore a multicolored ski hat from the house during the assault. Empty beer cans with fingerprints were left in the kitchen and family room. Entry to the home had been made by prying the lock on the back door. The attacker was armed with a knife and left no fingerprints. And the suspect took an opal ring, silver dollars, and several two-dollar bills. Cash, gold jewelry, and valuable prescription narcotics were not taken. Bird knew that he had 14 and 15-year-old girls murdered in Exeter, two masked home invader cases, and a murder where the victims were punched in the head, a victim's purse dumped out in her backyard, a girl that was stabbed by a man with a knife, a crime scene with empty beer cans and bottles and no fingerprints, a multicolored ski cap found at the murder scene of a 14-year-old girl, an attacker who pretended to know the victim personally, a victim attacked sleeping in her own bed while the male was out of town, an attacker that closed family members' bedroom doors, left valuable jewelry and cash behind, but took cigarettes, 
two attacks where the suspect entered the house through the kitchen door and one with a chisel block on the back door. A 15-year-old girl who was bound with her own bra and a suspect with no accent made verbal threats of harm and intent to rape. Oh, and did we mention Bird had a blue-eyed attacker who wore a mask with only eye holes. Seriously, it was a huge deal at the lineup in his Vesalia case. They bought ski masks for everyone in the lineup and had to sew shut all of the other openings, leaving just the eyes. That seems like a super specific M.O. point. Of course, Bird was also aware of all of the details from the Snelling House and the McGowan shooting. TCSO assisted with both of those cases. He knew about another teen girl being attacked by a man with a knife in her own bed and being kicked in the head by a man in a multicolored ski mask and that Mrs. Snelling's purse had been dumped in the backyard. He knew that VPD had found an alcohol bottle with no fingerprints at the scene and Bird knew that at the McGowan shooting scene, the VR had dropped a sock with an opal ring and six silver dollars. At the point when Bird got information from SSO about these first two EAR attacks in July of 1976, he had been in charge of the Vesalia and Tulare attacks in 1974 and both Jennifer and Donna's homicides. Shouldn't he have told SSO about those crimes, even though they weren't committed by Galloway? Even if you want to give Bird the benefit of the doubt and believe he couldn't put it all together, what was his excuse a few months later when VPD announced that the VR and EAR were the same person? It's really hard to understand, but in February 1977, Bird was one of the few people in a position to really put all of the pieces together. He knew the details of both the Visalia and Tulare attacks in 1974, and he was in charge of Jennifer's case. He had arrested the Porterville rapist in July of 76 and was fully aware of the MO of the first two EAR attacks. Then, a few months later, VPD announced that the VR and the EAR were the same offender and that he had left Tulare County in the summer of 1976. Bird not only worked out of the Exeter PD station, but lived two doors down from D'Angelo for three years. If Bird had even one clue that pointed to D'Angelo or a police officer killing Jennifer or Donna, how would he not have been able to realize the truth? Now, consider all of Bird's knowledge when you listen to this article from the Tulare Advance Register on February 28th. 1977. The Tulare County Secret Witness Program has grown by another $750 with donations from the Tulare County Deputy Sheriff's Association, Visalia Police Association, and County Peace Officers Association. The groups combined to donate the $750, bringing the total Secret Witness Fund to more than $6,000. Sergeant Richard McGowan said several people have called with information about crimes not even listed for rewards by the Secret Witness Panel. So far, the Secret Witness Panel has authorized payment for the solution of one series of crimes, a spate of rapes in the Porterville area. 
Rewards will be paid for information on two cases included on the Tulare County secret witness list. Persons having information on the crimes may report the information to secret witness with the guarantee that they will remain anonymous. The Board of Directors for the program is offering rewards for the arrest and conviction of suspects in the following crimes. Reward, $4,000. Homicide, Claude Ray Snelling, 45. The same person is believed responsible for shooting at a Visalia police officer on December 10, 1975. Reward, $1,500. Homicide. Jennifer Lynn Armour, 15. In case you've forgotten, one other important thing happened on February 28, 1977. Byrd ordered the destruction of all of the physical evidence in Donna's murder case. If we're trying to look at Byrd's mindset and motive for the destruction, it's impossible to ignore the facts contained in that news article. There was a large reward that had just been boosted by donations from three local law enforcement groups, being offered to solve two cases, the homicide of Jennifer Armour and the murder of Claude Snelling during the kidnapping of Beth. Who was managing the reward money and tips from the public? Richard McGowan, the brother of VPD agent Bill McGowan and the first person on the scene when his neighbor was attacked the month before Jennifer was killed. Was all of this likely to lead to the cases being solved? Well, they got a tip and paid out the reward that directly led to the arrest of the Porterville rapist a few months earlier. Who was the arresting officer on that case? Bob Bird. We've asked again and again, how could the connection between Jennifer and Beth have been missed? The answer is simple. Who told VPD that Donna wasn't killed by the VR? The lead investigator, Bob Bird. Who told VPD that Jennifer wasn't killed by the VR? The lead investigator, Bob Bird. We have discussed this at length with Vaughn, and the line in the sand was clear. TCSO refused to discuss their homicides or share the case files, and VPD had no authority to make them cooperate. This wasn't just true in the 1970s, VPD got the same response from TCSO in 2017 and 2018. This is the exact same situation VPD faced when they tried to work the EAR case with SSO in 1977, 78, and all of the years until D'Angelo's arrest in 2018. SSO had just turned down VPD again, only months before the arrest. There is no duty to share information with other police agencies or cooperate with their investigations, and criminals know it and use it to their advantage. It was not an accident that D'Angelo constantly shifted jurisdictions. It seems likely that the growing reward and the focus on Beth and Jennifer's cases together increased the pressure on Bird. The girls were the same age and physical type and were kidnapped a few blocks apart from each other. They were in the same class at Mount Whitney, and VPD were aware that the VR targeted homes of the school's female students and teachers. Additionally, the VR had been active in the area around Jennifer's kidnapping in the weeks leading up to it. Bird had to be worried that VPD or Richard McGowan would put it together and ask for Jennifer's case file. 
They had already asked about Donna and determined that the VR moved to Sacramento. It was just a matter of time before either VPD or SSO tried to test the evidence in Donna and Jennifer's cases against the VR and EAR evidence. Did Bird know that SSO and Grubb had both identified a suspect blood type of A? Probably. What was the logical thing to do if you wanted to make sure neither Jennifer nor Donna's murders could ever be connected to the VR and EAR? Destroy all the evidence and tell VPD that Jennifer was killed by her friends, but you don't have enough evidence to prosecute them. Was that fair to Donna, Jennifer, her friends, Oscar, or all of D'Angelo's future victims? No. Was it legal? No. Did it work? Definitely. We've talked about it a hundred times, including all of episode 32, but we still can't stress enough how insane it was for Bird to destroy that evidence and for TCSO Johnson, the forensics officer, to participate in it. They risked jail, being fired, and letting Oscar walk free, and yet they did it anyway. The threat of having another police agency test that evidence had to be real and imminent for them to take those risks. D'Angelo's arrest cleared up one logic gap we had with the destruction order. It was obvious to us that destroying the evidence had a very high chance of letting Oscar walk free. New trials were incredibly common, especially in death penalty cases, and there could be no trial without the actual physical invoice book. Bird and Johnson would have been blamed for letting Oscar out of prison. What could be worse than that? Something so bad that they would also risk their careers and a prison sentence? If they knew the real killer was a police officer, they had covered for him, and now he was attacking girls and women in Sacramento, their actions might actually make sense. It was never about keeping Oscar in prison. It was always about making sure the real killer was not identified and they were not blamed for his later crimes. Mm -hmm. 